Once again, we want to acknowledge to our Father and our God in heaven that we are grateful for all of his love, mercy, and blessings. Uh, we often express thanks to God uh, for the things that he does, and this is as it should be, uh, because God gives us many blessings day by day throughout the day, uh, every day of our living, and he has yet to bless us even once of debt or obligation. Uh, he blesses us because he is a merciful, gracious God, and it's just in his nature to be good to his creation. Uh, I believe that we should also thank God for his person. Uh, I don't believe anybody but God could deal with us, all of us, all the time, all at the same time, and, and remain unchanged uh, and ever be the good God that he is. Uh, no one could be God but God. Uh, the psalmist declares in Psalm 86, verse 15, but thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and true. And if you ever doubt uh, the truth of those words, just look at the fact that he is still the same God that he's always been after dealing with all of humanity for thousands of years. Uh, I'm glad that God is God, and I'm glad that he's God all by himself. And for all of God's blessings, we ought to be eternally grateful. We want to address your attention uh, this morning again to the text that was read into our hearing there from Mark chapter 4. Uh, we want to read again there verse number 38. Mark 4 verse 38, And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Based on uh, the event here recorded by Mark, we want to use this morning as a subject, circumstantial evidence. And as we consider the text that we have before us here in Mark chapter 4, uh, I submit to you that in many ways the trip of the apostles here recorded in Mark 4 uh, parallels our journey through life. And there is great profit in trying to view the events recorded in Scripture from the perspective of those involved in the event. I think it's always easy sitting on the sideline to be an expert in what somebody else should have done. Uh, it's easy when you're not in the heat of the moment to say you should have trusted God. Uh, you shouldn't have lost your temper. It's always easy, easier to say what's right than it is to do what's right. When I read Mark chapter 4, I understand the disciples' question and I can sympathize with their fear. See, they ask Jesus, don't you care that we are dying? And again, sitting here in, you know, this calm, dry building, uh, it's easy to say they should have trusted Jesus. Uh, but it's something about being in a crisis where you realize you don't have control over what's going on uh, that is easy to send you into panic mode. When we 
examine the account related to us by Mark, I think there are two things that we have to uh, appreciate right out the gate. Number one, what we are able to comprehend pales in comparison to the knowledge of God. So we ought to be careful about asking God questions or prognosticating how things are going to turn out because God knows so much more than we do. I, I submit to you, number two, that we are prone to missing even that which God has already shown us. Notice in the text in verse number 35, Jesus says, let us pass over to the other side. And then later he asked them, how is it that you have no faith? Now remember, Paul tells us, Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what Jesus is saying to them is, based on what I told you before we started, how is it that you're worried about how the trip was going to turn out? Sometimes God tells us things, but, but it kind of goes by us. You know, everything I hear, I, I didn't necessarily process uh, 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 in, in my mind. Allow me to digress for a moment. When we talk about uh, circumstantial evidence, I'm going to try to play CSI here for a little bit. In judicial circles, there are two kinds of evidence. There is direct evidence, such as witness testimony, uh, eyewitness testimony, and then there is circumstantial evidence. By definition, circumstantial evidence relies on an inference to connect it to a conclusion of fact. Now, for example, if you find fingerprints at a crime scene, now the fingerprints don't prove that the person to whom the prints belong committed the crime, but it does mean at some point they were there at the crime scene. So just on the basis of your fingerprints, I don't have enough to convict you. It's circumstantial. You were there, but it doesn't mean you did whatever was done. And if you really want to get deep, maybe somebody brought your fingerprints in there and planted them. But whatever, however you want to take that, circumstantial evidence is not proof positive. By contrast, direct evidence supports the truth of an assertion directly. We don't need any other additional evidence or inference. In other words, if I see you pull the gun, and I see you pull the trigger, and I follow the trail of the bullet, that's direct evidence. I saw you commit the crime. On its own, it is the nature of circumstantial evidence for more than one explanation to still be possible. Inference from one piece of circumstantial evidence may not guarantee accuracy. In other words, just because your prints were there don't mean you did it. Now, and if I just said, well, your prints are there, so you must be guilty, Lord knows I don't want to be blamed for crimes everywhere my fingerprints can be found. Circumstantial evidence usually accumulates into a collection so that the pieces then become corroborating evidence. Now, now if we can find your fingerprints, and then establish motive, and, and get a few more other pieces of circumstance, then the picture perhaps becomes a little more clearer. So together, they, more, they may more strongly support one particular inference over another. Now, if that's all that's too much for you, in, in layman's terms, 
Circumstantial evidence may be defined as look like. See, we make, we make assumptions all the time based on look like. And look like is just circumstantial evidence. If I see you and another person standing over in a corner talking, and you're looking at me while you're talking, that doesn't necessarily mean you're talking about me. Now, the circumstantial evidence would suggest that you were saying something about me. But you could understand that in more ways than just the fact that you were talking about me. It's a free country, and you got eyes. You can look wherever you want to when you're talking. And, and there's no rule that says what I'm talking about is directly related to what I'm looking at. If you laugh when I enter the room, it doesn't mean you're laughing at me. Now, the circumstantial evidence may say, well, they didn't start laughing until you came in the room. But how do you know uh, 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 that they're laughing at you? Maybe the other person didn't say something funny until you walked in. And maybe I'm just feeling self-conscious about me, and that's why I assume you must be laughing at me because I walked in. But with circumstantial evidence, multiple conclusions are possible. And I submit to you that in life, we are daily faced with both direct and circumstantial evidence. Now, in the spiritual context, direct evidence is what God speaks to. Circumstantial evidence is what it looks like based on what's going on around me. And circumstantial evidence often seems to contradict direct evidence. Look here in Mark chapter 4. Jesus said, uh, uh, the Bible says rather, and the same day when the even was come, verse 35, he saith unto them, let us pass over to the other side. Uh, I submit to you that the declaration of Jesus was and is direct evidence. When God speaks to something, there's no further evidence necessary to establish the truth because God's word is true. And even if we didn't have access to the rest of what Mark wrote, we would still know how the, truth, how the trip ended. Jesus said, let us pass over to the other side. Now, I don't know what happened in the middle of the lake. I don't know how long they were on the lake. I may not know how far it was from one side of the lake to the other side. But what I do know is Jesus said, we're going from this side to the other side. And I believe that even as Jesus said to them, let us pass over to the other side. And appreciate, once God speaks to a matter, the matter is settled. You know, one thing God doesn't do is argue with us about what the truth is. Now, now God gives us the truth, and he said, now the ball is in your court. You can obey or disobey as you see fit, but understand there are consequences for what you choose. I believe that God has spoken uh, 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 to us concerning some things, and, and these things are direct evidence. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now that's direct evidence. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in the world, but I'm greater than the world that you live in. That's direct evidence. I don't need anybody else's commentary to know who's in control of things. Uh, uh, in Romans 8, uh, uh, verses 38 and 39, uh, the Bible says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's just direct evidence. God loves us and he's greater than anything we'll come up against. But now here's where we have to listen to what the evidence says. As we go through life, we'll face some trial and some trouble and I submit to you that our trials and our troubles are like the wind and the waves in Mark 4. Now, what, Jesus, uh, what the Bible tells us is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What the direct evidence did not say is that the trip would be turbulence-free. See, you'll have some turbulence along the way. He just said, I can just tell you how the trip is going to end up. As you go through life, you're going to have some turbulence along the way. You're going to have some troubles and some trials. It might be issues with your health. It might be in your relationships. It might be financial. It might be emotional. You're going to have some wind and waves in your living. But Jesus has already said, we're going over to the other side. Now, now in John 14, he said, he said it this way, in my father's house are many mansions. He's already told us how the trip is going to turn out. Now, you experience some turbulence during the way, but we already know how the trip is going to turn out. The word of God is direct evidence. But then look with me again there in Mark chapter 4. Now, Jesus said, let us pass over unto the other side. Then verse 36, and when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. I just get the feeling from the way that the Bible says that the wind just blew up out of nowhere. You know, sometimes the, you know, the, the weather and the forecast aren't always in harmony. Sometimes the weather just blew up out of nowhere. There arose a great storm of wind. And mind you, if I'm in a boat, and, and, and I don't get the impression they were on the SS Titanic. Uh, you know, I, they, 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 I don't know how big the boat was, but it don't impress me that it's one of them boats you get on it, and, and you, you know, you ever been on a cruise ship? That thing's so big, you wouldn't even know you were on a boat if you hadn't seen it when you got on. I, I don't get the impression they were on a cruise ship. And so if I'm on one of these small boats, and look, don't be rocking the boat, and the last thing I need is a whole lot of wind tilting the thing from side to side. There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. But all of this is circumstantial evidence. Why? Because Jesus already said we're going over to the other side. So anything that would suggest otherwise, you can just summarily disregard. Now, you can say what you want to. I know you said we're going over to the other side, but I see this boat tossing and turning, and the boat full of water. Now look, we got turbulence and I'm wet. I know what the direct evidence said. The problem is sometimes the circumstantial evidence are talking rather loud too. And you just got to know which one to listen to. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now I'm not a seaman by any stretch of the imagination, but I do know that if your boat becomes full of water, it's going down. I think that's just, you know, and, and I don't necessarily have to test that out. I'm just pretty sure that's the case. When your boat fills up with water, it's going to sink. But then in verse 38, and he was in the hinder part of that ship, asleep on a pillow. I sometimes wonder, how are you sleeping in those conditions? 
Yeah, I think I'm a pretty sound sleeper. I grew up with three brothers, and for a large part of the time, we slept in the same room in the inner city where there wasn't no stranger to noise, and you just had to learn how to sleep through things. But there are some things I just haven't learned how to sleep through. I, I can't sleep through cold. You know, if I'm cold, look, we got to do something here. I, I, I can't sleep when I'm cold. I, I doubt that I could get a good sleep on a boat with the wind blowing it all over the place and the boat just about full of water. I, I would think it hard to sleep in those conditions. Unless you're Jesus. <laughs> and he was in the hinder part of the sheep asleep on a pillow and they awake him. Now he wasn't just sleep, he was sleeping hard. You know, because when, when you sleep, yeah, you know, stuff will wake you up. But when they got to wake you up with all this going on, and I get it, it was a busy day, and he'd been, you know, dealing with people where you out and all of that. But that's some sleep sleep there. <laughs> and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Lord, don't you care that we're dying? Their question contradicts what he told them when they got into the boat. Let us pass over to the other side. Now, I haven't said it's going to be turbulence free. I haven't said you're not going to get wet. But I did say we're going to the other side. So for you to ask me, don't I care that you're dying, says that you have little to no regard for what I told you. But I submit to you second this morning that circumstantial evidence is often misinterpreted. And I'm not mad at the apostles. You said we're going over to the other side, but the circumstantial evidence is suggesting rather loudly that we're not going to make it. The boat is rocking back and forth and is filling up with water. If we make the parallel, we tend to think that trials and troubles mean that something is wrong and become prognosticators of doom and gloom. But you know, trials and troubles don't necessarily mean that something is wrong. See, God can use troubles and trials to teach us and to mold us into people we could never become through pleasant things. You remember the word of James, James 1, 2 through 4? My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. What are you saying, James? God can use trouble to help you see some things that you would never see in sunshine and blue skies. I, I want to read a story to you. I want to read it so I can get it right. You know, sometimes when you're telling it, you miss a detail. A king had a friend who was noted for saying, this is good, after everything that happened. One day, the king and his friend were out on a hunting expedition. The friend would load and prepare the guns and give them to the king to fire. The friend seemingly made an error in loading one of the guns, for when the king fired the weapon, it took his thumb off. In examining the situation, the friend responded as he always did, this is good. No, the king replied, this is not good. The king then proceeded to have his friend sent to jail. About a year later, the king was hunting in an area that he should have known to stay clear of. He was captured by cannibals and taken to their village. The cannibals set up a stake and tied the king to it, preparing to cook him. As the cannibals were ready to set fire to the wood, 
they noticed that the king was missing a thumb. Being superstitious, they never ate anyone that was less than whole. Thus, they untied the king and allowed him to go free. As the king was returning home, he was reminded of the event that took his thumb and felt remorse for the way that he had treated his friend. He went immediately to the jail to speak with his friend. You were right, the king said. It was good that my thumb was blown off. He then relayed to the friend all that had just happened. The king then apologized to his friend for having imprisoned him. It was bad for me to do this, said the king. No, his friend replied, this is good. The king was astonished. What do you mean this is good? How could it be good for me to have sent my friend to prison? His friend answered, if I had not been in jail, then I would have been with you, and they surely would have eaten me. <laughs> the point of the story is we often let the circumstantial evidence of life override the direct evidence of God's word. I, I get it if you in that boat with all that wind and all that water, I get why you would think you were sinking. But I remember Jesus, when they got in the boat, Jesus said, let us pass to the other side. That means whatever may happen between here and the other side, we go going to the other side. In verse 39, and he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, peace, be still. See, they're more direct evidence. And the thing about it, nature is more persuaded of the direct evidence than we are. When he said, peace, be still, you know what nature did? It was still. God ever said to us, peace, be still? And God ever told us, don't worry about anything, but bring it to me in prayer? The wind and the waves listen better than we do. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? See, you had a word from me when we got in the boat about how the trip was going to turn out. It doesn't matter what the wind and the waves were doing. When I said, let us pass to the other side, the only way this trip could have ended was with us going to the other side. I, I submit to you third this morning, we must believe that God will be true to his word. And, and I don't just mean acknowledge intellectually, we, we must be convicted that what God says is direct evidence and it cannot be otherwise. In Numbers 23 verse 19, the Bible declares God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Now to repent, that means change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? The word of God is always direct evidence. God can't lie. See, but because he's the God that he, when he says something, it has to turn out the way he said. He must keep his word if for no other reason than to be true to himself. And the true test of my faith is how I respond in times of trouble. See, I believe anybody could talk a good game here in the assembly. For the most part, we all believe the same thing. You know, it's easy to state a point when everybody's going to be in agreement with you. The question is, what do I do when, when I'm in the minority? 
What do I do when the circumstantial evidence suggests something other than what the direct evidence has declared? Appreciate circumstantial evidence is not definitive. The waves were saying to the apostles, you're not going to make it. The water in the boat was saying, you're going to sink. But the direct evidence from Jesus was, let us pass over to the other side. The word and power of God are definitive. I'm glad God has spoken to us through his word. And I already know how the trip is going to turn out. Now, mind you again, you're going to have some turbulence, some wind and some waves along the way. But you already know how the trip is going to turn out. Why? Because the word of God is direct evidence. God offers us salvation, and we have direct evidence of the fact uh, uh, in his word. He requires that we hear the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried but rose the third day for our justification. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We must believe Jesus to be the Christ, John 8, verse 24. We must be willing to repent of sin, Acts 17, 30 through 31. The Bible declares there was a time when God winked at ignorance, but now he commands that all men everywhere repent because there's a day that he's going to judge the world in righteousness by Christ Jesus. He requires that we confess faith in Christ, Matthew 10, verse 32, that we be baptized in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. And the direct evidence of the word of God is that when we go down in the waters of baptism, he washes away our sins by the blood of Christ, and dwells us with his spirit, and he adds us to the church. And thereafter requires that we live obediently in his service, that his name might be praised. Perhaps you're here this morning, you want to respond to the invitation, or you want the church to pray for you. If either of these are the case, then we bid you to come as we stand and as we sing the song of invitation. <laughs>